How many of you are employed or have been employed? Raise them high. You love your job, don't you? All God's people said, boy, that's weak. Peter, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2 and through verse 7 of chapter 3, speaking about submission. And so, first slide, if you would, Mr. Logan. The last couple of Sundays, we have looked at freedom in Christ. And the reason, of course, that we are called to be free is that the Lord Jesus does not expect any foolishness out of us. To claim we are believers and live like, as the old adage says, live like the devil. We're to live like Jesus Christ. So this morning, picking up with verse 18, we're going to, I'm going to read through verse 25. On the passage of Scripture, submitting to suffering because Christ suffered for us. And so this specifically has to do with employment. And we talked last Sunday about the Bible doesn't cover everything in life, but one of the things that it does cover, actually in quite a bit of detail, is how we act as employees, or if we are employers, how we act. And so at the beginning this morning, we're going to talk about servanthood, we're going to talk about slavery, and the misconception that our culture has over slaves in the Bible. Okay? Beginning in verse 18, servants, Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, or we having died to sins, rather, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So may God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing. Let's go to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Teach us where we are ignorant. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us where we are negligent and that you would make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we talked about freedom. In verse 16, one of the wills of God is that uh, we're free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And then he lists four, basically, general categories of individuals. Honor, he says, all people. And that's because we're made all people, all eight billion people on the earth, are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. All people. And then he says, love the brotherhood because we're very lovable. And we talked about that last Sunday morning, didn't we? The brotherhood, the church of the living God. And he's going to speak about that in this particular passage here. Love the brethren. And then he says, fear God. So what drives submission is the reverential fear of God. What drives honoring people is the reverential fear of God. What drives loving the brotherhood or honoring the king is the reverential fear of God. Yesterday, King Charles, or Charles was uh, anointed and crowned King Charles III of the United Kingdom. And at the close of the message, I'll speak more about that. Perhaps you saw some of it. Perhaps some, some of you were up early enough to watch it. I taped it and watched a good bit of it. Robbie and I watched a good bit of it last evening after the wedding. 
It's amazing how biblical that coronation was. Interesting. So Peter, he's, Peter here says that we are to submit in verse 18, submitting to those that employ us. In ancient times, the word was often used, slaves submit to your masters. In fact, we're going to look at three passages this morning that address that. And that said, when we stop and think about how we, how we as employers may treat our employees, or how as employees we treat our employers, I would dare say that not many of us are very submissive. I would dare say we may be submissive to their faces, but we may also be hypocritical when we can't see their faces. I was employed for 40, other than the church here, 40, how long, 37 and 9, 40, was that 46 years? It's a long time. I had some very, very good managers, directors, and VPs that I reported to, but I also had some not so good. Over 46 years, you have an amalgam, a, a, a great, it's like spreading peanut butter. Now, how did I approach those men? I worked for men the entire time. And how did they approach me? And did my life, was my life, in rever lived in reverential fear of God, honoring them? See, there are people too. So we're to submit to those that employ us. And in ancient times, this referred to those that were slaves. And I have... This is one of the most penetrating and convicting passages in the New Testament. You may be here this morning and be a model employee. Sometimes you go into to, uh, businesses and you see little plaques. This so-and-so was the um, employee of the month or employee of the year. And a lot of people look at those and say, well, the reason that they were employees is because they always did what the boss said. Submit to those that employ us. Now, submission is a biblical principle. Peter's not the only one that speaks about it. He applies it here to specific life situations. He talks about the government. And it's hard sometimes to submit to our governments, uh, regardless of whether we lean to the left, the right, or in the center, it's just difficult because we have our own mindset as to how things should be. We bring our own prejudices, our own biases to almost everything, and that includes the Bible. So here, the submission he's talking about is in the obligation, it's the obligation of slaves or bondservants, and the word he uses here is servants. He's talked about bondservants in in the previous verses. To their masters, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Why? Because we are to fear God and because God made them. He didn't just make you and I, he made those that were our, or were our masters. Now, I ask you this morning, and we know that the institution of chattel slavery is repugnant to us and it should be. But I would ask you to spend more than 30 seconds thinking about what the Bible says about slavery. Quite often today we run into individuals that will exegete the Bible that know nothing of how to interpret the Bible. And they will throw out statements that cause us to scratch our heads, yet they have not spent any more than 30 seconds thinking about it. They just want a gotcha. Gotcha. 
So as believers, we need to spend more than 30 seconds thinking about when we come across a difficult passage. More than 30 seconds thinking about it. Now, one of the new atheist movements, and there's a group now that's called the, the uh, there's another word for it, I can't, it escapes me right, uh, right now, but one of the new atheist movements attack on faith is that the Bible's pro-slavery. Well, is it? So that's what happens when you spend only 30 seconds thinking about it. Oh, the Trinity makes no sense to me, therefore I can't believe it. That's what happens when you spend less than 30 seconds thinking about it or reading. This is also found in progressive circles today. And it's used uh, in order to defend certain social views. Well, the Bible's pro-slavery. It was written by a bunch of individuals, a bunch of men. No women contributed to it and so forth. So we can't believe it. We can't accept it. And that's what happens when you spend less than 30 seconds talking about the Bible or less than 30 seconds in the Bible. Now, we do find slavery in both the Old Testament, and we find it uh, mentioned quite a bit. Actually, we find it mentioned more often in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. Ephesians 6, Paul's closing out his epistle to the church at Ephesus, and he says, bondservants, Obey your earthly masters. Sounds very similar here, doesn't it? That's Paul. Colossians chapter 3. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your masters. There's the second admonition. And then, of course, what we have here. Servants, be subject to your masters. So if the Bible mentions something one time, we probably should pay attention to it. Twice, definitely. And three times, there's no debate. The Spirit of God wants us to be submissive and wants us to be subject to those today that are our employers. Next slide, if you would. Now, We'll go through a little bit of history here because I want to spend some time on this so you understand the Bible's position. And we'll do that before we move ahead and interpret what we have here before. Slavery was prevalent during the New Testament times. I have told you a number of times that between 60 and 70 million slaves lived in the Roman Empire. It is estimated, and I read this week, that there are 40 million slaves still. And by slavery, they're talking about chattel slavery, or those that may be in some type of uh, um, uh, human, uh, human slavery or, or just things of prostitution and those types of things. So we're really not a lot better today than in ancient times. Murray Harris, in his book, Slave of Christ, wrote this. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race. It wasn't a racial issue. By speech, it wasn't a language issue. Or clothing, it wasn't a wealth or poverty issue. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners, and they held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery because they were poor for economic or social advantage to raise their level, especially in the Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate was part of a caste system in the Roman Empire. He was not born into privilege. He was not born into slavery. But he did have to lift himself to a particular point to where the emperor recognized him. Now, go on to say Pontius Pilate and Augustus and Tiberius didn't get along very well. And it wasn't long after Jesus that he uh, cowardly gave Jesus over to the Jews that Tiberius removed him from his governorship. So they were highly educated. They were known as lawyers. They were teachers. They were doctors. 
They were those that spent time in uh, the economic profession and so forth and so on. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated in 10 or 20 years. We find this in the Old Testament as well. Or if they were younger and moved into slavery, they generally were freed by the time they were in their 30s. It wasn't a lifelong slavery. They were not denied the right of public assembly, and they were not socially segregated because of race or speech or clothing or fill in the blank. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. In fact, if you hired slaves or servants that were lawyers and teachers, you probably wanted to listen to them. Now, here's the thing, and this is important because we're going to move from being submissive to our employers to how submission applies in the home. We bring premonitions to Scripture. We have preconceived notions that because, as humans, we often seek a confirmation bias an understanding that agrees with our presumptions. Well, you agree with me, and we find that especially in political parties. You agree with me because of this, or you agree with me because of that. And I agree with you because I, I'm looking for confirmation bias. I want somebody to check the box and say, yeah, I agree with you. We're looking for an understanding that agrees with our presumptions. But what happens is this distorts the cultural differences found in the Bible because the Bible is not assembled based on confirmation bias. And one of the ways we know that is because when we read the Scripture, we preach the Scripture, we teach the Scripture, it convicts. So if it convicts us, that's not confirmation bias. That's the work of the Spirit of God. So when we hear slave, or the word slave, and we, in our own historical context of race-based chattel slavery in our country, in which the slave is or was a, the master's property and lacked any legal rights, that's immediately when we read that word, that's what the Bible's talking about. Therefore, the Bible supports slavery. But that's not what the Bible talks about. You find it in the Bible, and you find it in the book of Exodus, when the Hebrews were chattel slaves. But every time we read the word doesn't mean that people were locked into some un unforgivable, undeniable horror. Chattel slavery is among the most despicable horrors to disgrace human civilization. And as I said, in many cases it still exists today. It doesn't exist in this country, but does exist in, in other countries. And we need to pray. Many Christians in other countries, unfortunately, are under this type of slavery. Think of North Korea. Think of portions of China. Think of the Middle East. We're privileged to be Americans, to be born where we are, and have the opportunity to understand that people are made in the image of God. Next slide, if you would. It's not, however, we just read three texts, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter here. It's not, however, what is in view in this text. Now, the, the common word for slavery in the New Testament is the word doulos, but it's not the word found here. Again, more than 30 seconds thinking about the word. Doulos means slave. It could also be translated servant. It can also be translated bondservant. And in some cases it is, and Peter does use it, but in this particular case he doesn't. Uh, we've already talked about the, the social status of slaves in the uh, first century, the Greco-Roman world. Uh, most were not slaves from birth uh, because of their race. 
Now that differs from the history here in the United States. Not the word used in, in verse 18. Peter uses the word. Uh, actually, it's, it's two words. It's a twin word, uh, domesticus or uh, orchitei, and it means household servant, like butlers, like maids, like those that are day laborers that worked for wages. Chattel slaves did not work for wages. Now, the Roman judge, Gaius, claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war. And if they were not sold, and they were sold into slavery, but they could work their way out of it, if they were not sold as slaves, they were murdered. And this happened time and time again. The, the uh, gladiators, the, the uh, Colosseum and so forth, this took place not only in Rome, took place in Corinth, took place in Athens, took place in Antioch, took place in Tarsus, where Saul is from, Paul. So it, it permeated the Greco-Roman world. Now, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the law that was given to the Israelis, to the Hebrews, regulated that slaves were to be freed every seven years. If they were indentured, if they were household servants and so forth, they would work off what they owed in seven years. Sometimes they borrowed money in order to make a purchase. This was not unusual for women to do. And so... In Exodus chapter 21, you can write this down. We won't go there this morning, but it, uh, there the, 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 uh, the Lord expands on the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20. And he says, every seven years, if you have a slave, you have to free them. Uh, it also commanded the death penalty for those that are man-stealers or those that kidnapped slaves. And it generally sought to limit the institution and protection of the slave, not the master. Uh, and again, not organized by race, but by circumstances and economics. So in order to understand this, we have to have a, uh, a God's will of command. We've talked about God's will of command in the Bible. In order to understand God's will of command, we need a panorama of biblical theology. So I taught on biblical theology a year or so ago, a couple of years ago. Next slide. Let's define that. So one of the understandings of biblical theology, by the way, it's simply you take the Bible and from a 40,000 feet view, you are looking at what the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation. Now, we're not, this is not a 40,000 feet view here. We are mining for diamonds. We're not raking leaves and we're not flying over. Biblical theology begins with acknowledging what we call progressive revelation. Okay? It's simply put, God did not reveal his will. And we're talking here of the will of command. That's what we've been talking about beginning in verse 13. He did not reveal his will or his character to humanity all at once. We don't see that in the scripture. We see what's progressive. God could have given the law to Abraham. He did not. He gave it to Moses. And he did these things gradually through history until we reached the incarnation. Until God the Son appears on earth. Things change and they change rapidly. And you would think so. God shows up. What are you going to do? You're going to change. So we need to look at the entire narrative of biblical revelation to interpret it fairly. Not just looking at servants or slaves be submissive to your masters with all fear. Oh, Peter must be, he's not condemning it, so he's, he must be supporting it. Uh, 
those of us that are believers, those of us that are Christians, believe that God accommodates his revelation in historical contexts that are all um, that are all fallen social structures. There's never been a time in history that was perfect. Adam and Eve for just a short period of time in the Garden of Eden, and then all hell breaks loose, chapter 3. All the way through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, all hell is breaking loose until Jesus returns. And then we're not told anymore about hell breaking loose. We're told about heaven coming down. That's part of biblical theology, to understand that after the second chapter of Genesis through to the 20th chapter of Revelation, all hell's breaking loose. And it's no different today than it was with Cain and Abel. Mike reminded us, you may have heard this morning, there were nine people that were murdered in Texas uh, yesterday. All hell's breaking loose. In fact, all hell's been here. It's been breaking loose for millennia. So here's one of the things that we need to remember. See the underlying part? From our own sinful nature. We should know that God permits actions that are not in accord with his will of command. You should know and understand this morning how desperately... We need a Savior. And we need a Savior desperately because we are despicably mired in our sin without it. And again, all we need to do is look at the world. But we must begin with ourselves. So God does permit actions that are not in accord with his will of command. We talked about this over the past two weeks. He allows them, doesn't agree with them, he allows them because he is merciful and desires that all men come to the knowledge of the, of the truth in Christ Jesus. That's why they're allowed. God is patient, and he's patient with me, and he's patient with you. So when you're dealing with your employer, your employee, remember that. God is patient with them and with me. In the Bible, slavery, polygamy, sometimes divorce, were common in antiquity. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts isn't necessarily biblical approval. I hope you understand that. David was a man after God's own heart. How many wives did David have? Do you know? He had six. How many wives did Solomon have? 700. That's a lot of weddings. A lot. God allowed them, but that did not mean that God approved of them. And we know by, through Solomon's life, <clears throat> excuse me, through reading Solomon's life, that when he was old, in fact, the Bible specifically says, when his he was old, his wives drew his heart away from God. So these despicable sinners, as beautiful as they were, used their feminine wives to distort the king of Israel. So remember that. Biblical instruction that allows for them in certain contexts is not biblical approval. And 
When we come to anything like that, slavery, polygamy, divorce, we must always interpret it in light of all else the Scripture says. If not, you're going to get bound up and you're going to become cultic. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning, not, not very long, but turn with me to the little epistle of Philemon. This is just back a few pages. comes after the book of Titus. I intended to cover Philemon. Some people call it Philemon, but I call it Philemon. I intended to cover uh, Philemon uh, when we were looking at the uh, uh, epistles of John and Jude, but we uh, moved back to Peter during that time. I'm not going to read the entire passage here, but from the book of Philemon, we learn something about slavery. It is in the New Testament, and the New Testament voices the Bible's utter opposition to any form of chattel slavery in this book. Next slide. <clears throat> so here's, let me give you an overview, and then we'll read verses 8 through 17. Here's some of, the, some of what's taking place. Notice what Paul said. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Appia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So Philemon was a believer. He's also wealthy. So if you ever have a Jeopardy question, which book in the Bible is written to a wealthy recipient? Philemon would be the answer to that. Paul, as always, grace to you and peace from our um, Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 8, let's read verses 8 through 17. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such as one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ, of Jesus Christ. So Paul was enslaved, he was imprisoned. Appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. I am sending him back. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon, and he ran away. He encountered Paul. You believe in the providence of God? And there it is right there. And Paul says, I have begotten him while in my chains. He was unprofitable to you for one. But now he's profitable. Why? Because he's born again. His heart's changed. And Philemon, you're a believer. Your heart should have changed. Verse 13, he says, Whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Change for the gospel. Circle that. Paul was enslaved in chains. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. I don't want you to do it because you think you have to do it. I want you to do it because you love Onesimus. Or perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. No longer as a what? Slave. I don't want you to take him back as a slave. Now if the Bible was supportive of chattel slavery, why did Paul say that? Think more than 30 seconds about what you want to say about the Bible and challenge others to think more than 30 seconds, or challenge others to say, and where do you find that in the Scripture? That's simple enough. You don't have to be arrogant about it. You just say, okay, well, where would you find that in the Scripture? Well, I know it's in there somewhere. It's often like what people say, the weather's going to change at the end of times. That's nowhere found in the Bible. Nowhere. 
But we think it is because we've heard it and heard it and heard it. Confirmation bias. He says, verse 15, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. You need to take him back as a brother in Christ. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. And here's one of the great things about Paul. But if he has wronged you, and indeed he wronged you, he ran away. Or owes you anything. Cost Philemon something. Then put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. But here's the thing, Philemon, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Your faith, you came to faith because of me. So, yeah, I'll pay you if you want to be paid. But remember, I led you to Christ. What a great little epistle. Don't take him back as a slave. Take him back as a brother. He appeals to Philemon to receive him as you would receive me. And we talked last week about loving the brotherhood. This is how we love the brotherhood. This is why these passages are difficult. Because quite often we don't love this way. Paul dissolves the slave-master relationship for a brother-to-brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity by which the apostle himself would be treated. We all want to be treated with dignity. Yeah, we do. And we should be treated with dignity. And we should treat others with dignity. Sometimes we become indignant. We, we talked about this last Sunday morning, did we not? We get angry because that's from the heart. We don't, it's not premeditated. Someone says something and then off the handle we go. And then later on we'll say, well, that was my right. No. <laughs> no, that's not our right. We'll talk about rights as we, we won't do it this Sunday morning, but in the next couple of Sundays we'll cover that. It's my right to do that. No, it's not. We are Christ's slaves. It's bond servants. It's not right to do that. We're to be like Christ. Who, Peter said, did not open his mouth. So we know right off that Christ was not an American. Because I like to open my mouth and defend myself. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. But I remind you, Philemon, you would not know the Lord Jesus if it had not been for me. Now, the key teaching in, the, in, the book, in this book and throughout the New Testament is that before the institution of slavery is abolished, and it was abolished, the gospel abolishes assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. The gospel changed Philemon's life. The gospel changed Onesimus' life. Onesimus didn't cry for his rights as a slave. And Philemon didn't cry for his rights as a master. The gospel changed their hearts. And for hearts to be changed, you want a changed world? Hearts must change. Governments cannot give us any more rights than we already have in Christ. Think more than 30 seconds about what you say. And I have to do it too. The gospel abolishes these assumptions and the prejudices that make slavery possible. And here's the thing. Remember that sin makes slaves of us all. 
We are no more moral than Philemon. And we're no more moral than Pontius Pilate. We're sinners that need the grace of Jesus Christ. Next slide. We'll close with this this morning. Here's the thing. This is the way we look at history, and this is not a good way to look at it, especially when it comes to the Bible. We tend to judge the past, history. And we tend to judge the Bible, history, with an egregious lack of humility and an ignorance of history by judging all of history by what we know now. C.S. Lewis called it, he called it a, words have escaped me now, but he, uh, he said we're, we're suffering from chronological snobbery. Those are the words that he used. Chronological snobbery. And Lewis died 60 years ago. He said people look at history through today's lenses. And they assume that everyone that lived before us was ignorant, uneducated. They were poor or they were wealthy or they were much worse sinners than we are. Chronological snobbery. And yes, some elements of the Christian faith did support slavery, chattel slavery over the years. And we know that from the history in our own country and in others. Because virtually everyone did. Did not make it right. But they did. And we forget that our churches are made up of sinners. Born again sinners. So, let's talk a little bit about this and I'll close. Like Philemon. The more interesting question is this. Not that we have all this history behind us, which we do, and we can't change. Can't change. But the more interesting question is this. Who first embraced and then propagated the radical idea that slavery was wrong, chattel slavery was wrong, and needed to be abolished? Was it the atheist? Was it the progressives? Was it the moralist? Was it the Renaissance thinkers? No. It came out of the Reformation from believers. Why? They read the Bible. That's why. Again, you see, it took years. Well, why didn't they think of that before? Some of them probably did. And yes, Yes. Why didn't we think of a lot of things before? I find myself doing this quite often. Wow, I could have had a V8. You ever think that? Of course you do. The emergence in the 17th century of the Puritans came out of the Reformation. It impacted the mid-18th century Quakers, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists. John Newton. What did John Newton do before he was converted? What did he do? What did he do? He wrote Amazing Grace, by the way. What was it? I've told you this a hundred times. He was a captain, captain of a slave ship. John Newton was converted. You know what he did? He became an abolitionist. It is recorded that many of the sailors that worked under John Newton said there was never a more vile man that ever lived than John Newton. Yet God gloriously saved him, and he became an abolitionist. 
They took their marching orders from the New Testament. They didn't take their marching orders from contemporary social norms. This is one of the reasons we need a robust biblical theology and an exposure to expositional preaching and teaching so that we know these things, so that we can apply these things, so we don't forget these things. The late theologian John Mary wrote this. The New Testament thereby does not endorse slavery. And yet at the same time, it did not forbid it. But all the seeds for the dissolution of slavery were sown in the New Testament. Now, try as we might, we cannot change the past. But as believers, we are to be defenders of the faith. Yesterday, Charles III, Charles became King Charles III. He was coronated. He'd already been, but he was coronated. And one of his titles, I don't know if you watched it or not, but one of his titles, he was called the Defender of Faith. The title goes back about 500 years to the Reformation. Pope Clement VII gave the title to Henry VIII, and Henry VIII didn't like his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and wanted uh, Jane Seymour, or uh, Jane, among others, to be his wife. And so he broke with the Catholic Church. The English Reformation followed. I don't think Henry VIII knew what was going on, but when England broke with papal authority because of the Reformation, then the Pope tried to get the title back, the Defender of Faith. But Henry said, nope, what's written is written. But if you watched yesterday how inherently biblical and deeply Christian the ceremony was, because it was deeply grounded in Scripture. I don't know if you noticed or not, you may have watched it, but there was a time during the coronation when they brought in three, basically, walls, movable walls. Charles took off his capes, he took off his robes, he was there in a, a linen vesture. And they lined two of the walls up, and then in front they placed another wall where the participants, so those that were watching, the audience, the congregation, could not see what was taking place. It was a very private moment. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury and the deacons, there were many deacons there, they're different, they Archbishops wear the white, and the deacons wear all the other colors. Took Charles up behind the walls. And even the camera couldn't see what was going on. Solomon in 1 Kings 1 was anointed by Zadok the priest. First time that a priest anointed a king. Charles was anointed yesterday by the Archbishop of Canterbury behind these walls, very private moment. And he read and called him, Now you, King Charles, are the defender of the Christian faith. When this took place in Westminster Abbey, there was singing and there was a song that was played. It was choral music that was written by George Frederick Handel. Now, that name may not mean anything to you, but he wrote the Messiah that we sing at Christmas time. Well, Handel wrote another piece entitled Zadok the Priest. That's what was sung, that's what was played while this was taking place. Handel wrote it for the coronation of King George II back in the early 1700s. So 
in a thousand-year-old ceremony, a 500-year-old title, and a 300-year-old musical celebration praised King Charles III as the defender of the faith. History. That's who you and I are. We are the defenders of faith. We're the defenders of faith before our employers and before our employees. That's why Peter says we are to submit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the for the epistle of Paul to his friend in the faith, Philemon and Onesimus. And now, Lord, I pray that uh, obviously we certainly haven't covered everything this morning that we could have, but hopefully we learn that submission, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, does not mean acquiescence, but it does mean that we're to submit to others as we would to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our prayer this morning is if, if there are any today that do not know you as Savior, we pray that you'd move in their hearts that they would submit to the convicting power of the Spirit of God, call out to Jesus and forgiveness of sin, and in faith receive him as their Savior. As believers, as we go through this passage, teach us, Lord, our responsibility to you and to others, that we honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one verse of closing hymn. <clears throat> and if the Lord's spoken to you this morning, uh, you do not know the Lord as your Savior or you're unsure, then we encourage you and we invite you this morning as we're singing to make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room with uh, a counselor that has a Bible. They can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can leave here with that assurance of faith and an understanding of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here today and the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church, perhaps by believer's baptism, as Ms. Kayla did this morning, or uniting with the church with statement of faith to transfer of letter. We encourage you to come. Believers, primarily as always, the message is to you. Give thought to what we see and read in the Bible and place it in a context that is different from where we are today in many cases. The center portion never changes. But the context, historical context does change. So let's listen and learn from what the Lord has given us. What number, Brother Mike? 342. 342. If the Lord's spoken, won't you come as we stand and sing? <clears throat>